Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Welcome. This is Lisa Reagan, and today I'm talking with Marilyn Mandala Schlitz about her upcoming documentary, Death Makes Life Possible. Marilyn is a social anthropologist and the ambassador for creative projects at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. She is also ION's immediate past president and CEO. For more than three decades, Marilyn has been a leader in the field of consciousness studies. Her books include Living Deeply, The Art of and Science of Transformation in Everyday Life, and Consciousness and Healing, Integral Approaches to Mind-Body Medicine. Welcome, Marilyn. Thank you, Lisa. Happy to be here. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and I, I wanted to uh, draw our listeners and readers of, of the article into our discussion by giving them a little bit of historical context so that we can really help everyone understand the amazing significance of the title, Death Makes Life Possible, which is a fascinating title, by the way, and I can't wait for you to tell us how that came up. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> so we were talking about how uh, something relevant that people can identify with. Uh, Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, came out in 1603. The uh, pirated version was published then anyway. And in the very popular and well-known uh, monologue that Hamlet delivers about death, he, uh, the to be or not to be, he compares death to the undiscovered country. And, and unless you're a literary geek like myself, you may not realize that the undiscovered country was this confrontation to, to, to the church's authority at the time and came directly out of hundreds of years of Renaissance thinking. And what what Shakespeare and what Hamlet was postulating at the time was that, you know, the church has told us what to believe about death. And the struggle between science and spirituality was settled by the church saying, we're going to take the inner world, science can take the outer world, and we don't want you to question this. This is our piece. And then Hamlet cracks this door open by saying, no, this is an undiscovered country. So... This is a, a huge idea, radical departure in thinking, and again, cracking this door open. And 400 years later, we have the Institute of Noetic Sciences, who's been uh, actively researching consciousness studies for 40 years, and yourself, a very well-established author and anthropologist looking into consciousness issues. And you are presenting what I think is another uh, radical departure from current cultural thinking by bringing out this title, Death Makes Life Possible. And now that we have our context, <laughs> I would love for you to tell us, how was this title come up with and what inspired you to do this movie? Well, just thank you for that breathtaking opening. And the span of that, I think, allows people to open their imaginations and 
and also to recognize it's not a new conversation that we're having around death and um, and what comes later, what is the possible model that each of us holds that gives us some sense of the possible, um, the mystery, the the undiscovered country, beautiful metaphor. Um, the title Death Makes Life Possible came from Deepak Chopra. Uh, Deepak is the co-producer on this film, and uh, we're also doing a, a book project with the same title that will support the movie. Uh, the movie is uh, a feature-length documentary that uh, really explores this mystery of death. How do different cultures hold it? How do different religions and spiritual uh, worldviews hold this idea of um, of death, why do we die, and uh, what comes next, if anything. Uh, so we've interviewed people from uh, many different faith traditions, um, the Abrahamic traditions, so Judaism, uh, Christianity, uh, Islam, and then we've talked to Buddhists and Hindus and atheists, uh, pagans quite a gamut of people and different perspectives. And, and so I think one of the things that is possibly confusing for people is how is it that, you know, uh, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Jew, a, a pagan, and an atheist could all be using the same grocery stores, the same schools, the same uh, hospitals, and yet living in their own worldviews and carrying around a set of assumptions that in many cases are diametrically opposed to one another. Uh, and so it seems as though kind of trying to understand some of the perennial qualities behind these cosmologies, these models of what happens when we die. Uh, and then we move into the science. Like what does science have to say today about the evolutionary nature of death? Death does make life possible. We need death in order to maintain that great cycle of life. Uh, and so listening, you know, in the in the film, we went and interviewed uh, the zookeeper at the Oakland Zoo who uh, was telling us, uh, and we were allowed to film then, this gibbon. And the gibbons mate for life, and they do these beautiful songs together in the uh, natural world, out in the wild. And uh, this one um, lost his spouse. He died after a many-year relationship, and he stopped singing. And um, he started singing again. He's he's recovered. But one of the beauties of the interview was that she talked about how important grief is, uh, and that it is uh, inherent in the natural world and in the animal kingdom, but that it's really important not to grieve too long. And that in, in particular out in the wild, um, that you would be jeopardizing your life either because of your depressed immune system or your lack of attention, uh, things that would make us more vulnerable. Uh, I, I found it just really insightful and also very hopeful that uh, Nico, the gibbon, has started to sing again and that there is that way in which we can engage life even after the adversities of loss. Uh, so we are also talking to scientists who are looking at the possibility that something survives bodily death, a soul, uh, identity, um, 
some kind of journey. Yesterday, I had the privilege of meeting with a group of um, Incan Indians from Peru who live up in the the highlands, and uh, they believe themselves to be the direct inheritors of a lineage line that was largely eradicated when the conquistadors came. So again, going back to our historical references, different continent, but equally interesting. So for about 500 years, they went and hid in the mountains. And it's only in the last few years that they've started to come out and to engage modernity and with the, you know, some messages about what they think from their own cultural understanding is important. And I was talking to them about death and, you know, what do they think happens after. And what's really interesting then is last night I went to an art exhibit for um, some cartoonists who had been chronicling the Day of the Dead or the um, El, uh, El Dio de las Mortes. And the activity, the parades, the altars are very alive. Uh, I live in Northern California, and in my town, this practice takes over for a month. And it's an honoring of the dead as a parallel life. And so it was interesting to me that you know, these Indians carrying a heritage about 500 years, you know, away from direct communication with their um, descendants has the seeds of the same model, the same cosmology, the same worldview about the idea that um, the gentleman who was explaining it to us said, uh, I play the flute. I love to play my flute. So when I die, they'll bury me with my flute because that's going to be something I'm going to need in my spirit life. And in the Day of the Dead ceremonies, we see that, you know, people make altars in order to provide um, items that their deceased would enjoy. Maybe it's a cigar, maybe it's um, sugar. Candy is really popular. Um, you know, they burn candles and they offer, you know, drinks. Uh, they put pictures there to remind us who we're honoring. And so there's this very rich continuity between the living and then those people who pass over. And there's the belief that there can be an active communication. There's no separation. Uh, we find this in a lot of the different traditions, that there's a, an active relationship between our departed loved ones and, you know, the way in which we carry on our lives. So, so we also have been talking um, to scientists about how you would study something like the soul. Uh, in our lab at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, I interviewed Dean Radin, and, and we looked at uh, a study now in which we're looking at the psychophysiology of mediums. So people who claim to communicate with the departed and what's happening in their brains, what's happening in their bodies when they're having these experiences. And so that's interesting. There's also research that has collected case reports on reincarnation, uh, looking for uh, threads of evidence that show some kind of identity can survive bodily death. So these are very interesting mysteries and remain mysteries, but yet science is now attempting to explore them. Uh, and then we talk to health professionals, uh, health and healing practitioners who can tell us how having a healthy relationship with death is actually something that can imbue our life with greater purpose uh, and I think ultimately make us happier, healthier, and better citizens. So that's what we're exploring in the context of this documentary. 
uh, we are uh, following my life journey. So beginning at the point when I was 18 months old and, you know, curious, um, inquisitive, and I did what a lot of 18-month-old kids do, which is, you know, attempt to explore something by putting it in my mouth, and it was lighter fluid. And I ended up in the emergency room and in and out of intensive care for about three months as a baby. And I think there was something in that experience, even though I don't consciously remember it, that informed my curiosity around this question um, and really helped to inspire me to to want to look at ways that we can help heal ourselves and heal our culture. And I think our relationship to death is one of the big taboo topics. Uh, it's something that most of the psychological theory talks about it as, you know, terror management. Um, but there's also a way in which incorporating death in a more routine way into our life so that it's not so black and white, but is this kind of seamless whole, um, can really help us to feel more resilient, um, to have a greater sense of connection. I think, you know, people who, you know, can maintain a, a healthy conversation with people that they love and care about, even if they've passed over, uh, can be very good for our psychology. And so we're kind of turning the theory on its head and saying that rather than seeing all of this in the the most nefarious terms, um, it's really time for us to shed light on this uh, this reality that impacts all of us. As you're talking about uh, this cross-cultural belief and, and experiences that we share despite our, our the overlay of our filters or our worldview, as you call it, um, I'm thinking about uh, a cemetery here in Virginia where I live in Richmond, and it was built in the 1800s, a Victorian cemetery, a very beautiful cemetery. It was built to be park-like, and, and it still is very beautiful, and the statuary there is, is very ex- exquisite and ornate, and they have crypts in the sides of hills. There are two presidents buried there. It's Hollywood Cemetery, actually, and if you go online and look at um, the photos of Hollywood Cemetery, you'll see that when it was designed in the 1800s, it was intended to be a park. And um, today we might consider that to be a morbid idea that after church on Sunday you grab a picnic lunch with your family and you go sit on the graves of the people that you love that have passed. Um, and, and some of these graves are uh, whole families uh, that were wiped out in the, the flu around the turn of the century, the flu epidemic that came. So some of them will be a, a large statuary followed by six or seven little bitty uh, statuaries of, of lambs and crosses for the, the you know, representing the whole family that was wiped out. So it's a very, uh, it's, it is actually a very beautiful cemetery. But the idea of sitting with your loved ones and um, and being with them was still in our culture uh, 150 or so years ago. But and and I can imagine I'm thinking about ways to facilitate a dialogue around this in our lives, and that we still had at the time. Of course, our elderly were in our homes passing, um, and we had our children being born in our homes as well. So, can you speak to the Western idea of how would we find places to have this dialogue comfortably without the pathology now? Well, I think that you know many churches still maintain the the 
idea that there is a connection and that praying for the departed can be an important uh, way of staying in touch. Um, I think that one of the my hopes with the Death Makes Life Possible project, and it's a movie and a book, and will also be a learning program. Uh, we're going to take a telecourse format for uh, January with the Institute of Noetic Sciences to explore some of these ideas together. Uh, I think that what we're identifying are some practices that can be pulled from the various traditions. Um, and we can see that there are a lot of commonalities. As well as there are differences, there are commonalities. And, um, you know, important practices, I just went and interviewed Lauren Artress, who is uh, the minister at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And it's a magnificent cathedral that was built, um, you know, not so long ago, but it's kind of a replica of some of the old uh, European cathedrals. And um, we talked about her favorite practice, which is walking the labyrinth. And the labyrinth is, you know, something that is available. There's like thousands of them all over the world. And she, on her website, the Veritas website, uh, actually has a list of uh, as many of them as she has been able to keep track of so that people can go and engage in a walking meditation in this um, I don't know exactly how to define a labyrinth. It's um, it's like a maze, but it's got a defined path. And so it's a circular walkway that leads you to the center, but only circuitously. So every time you think you've gotten to the center of the labyrinth, it will shoot you off into another direction. And so it becomes a metaphor for life. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have this path where secure that we're on a linear path going forward, and that is our Western worldview, uh, very causal. One thing leads to another. And yet walking the labyrinth allows us to see that there are many paths and that um, certainly it doesn't always go in the direction that we think it's going to, and that becomes a transformative practice. But she invites people to use the labyrinth as a grief tool. And so walking in and having a conversation with the departed loved one. Um, You can compose a letter to the person in your mind and say all of the things that you never got to say to them. Um, She invites people to uh, listen deeply for what she calls the little voice within that can help to articulate some, some answers for us when we're facing these great mysteries, these undiscovered lands that... Um, it helps us to navigate. So that's a beautiful practice that I think people can do every day, anytime. Uh, I know for myself that my mom died uh, last year, and I have taken a practice of wearing something, um, particularly in circumstances where I know I'm going to be challenged and I really need all my resources with me. I'll just put on a pair of her earrings or her shoes. I was the only one of my family that wore the same shoes size that she did. And so I inherited a bunch of shoes. And, um, and, uh, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel connected. And, um, You know, I feel as though there's a way of communicating that is my mother living in me and living through me. And, you know, we know from genetics now that we are the inheritors of all those generations that went before us. 
So we are the living representation of those people, and maybe their traits, maybe their personalities, uh, their hair, hair color, their eye color. Um, you know, there are ways in which we are embodying this continuity line with our descendants. And I think that bringing that into a, a noetic space uh, where we allow ourselves to access that little voice within, to engage in communication, to have a gentle conversation about some of those topics that maybe didn't get resolved. I think all of those can be very, very healthy practices and easy to do. That is a very practical part of the documentary, um, and it is uh, very beautifully done, and I look forward to, to having it all out there. Uh, but I, I want to go back to that, that meta view because we, we moved from the, the historical piece um, uh, of death and, and how we are now in a place where we don't see death much in our uh, culture. We uh, don't get to experience death uh, in our elderly as much, and uh, it's very interesting, but today is October 10th, 2012, and today the CDC came out with a report saying that America's population is now uh, at 2.5 million deaths per year, which is the highest it's been mortality-wise ever. So we have an aging population here, and at the same time, we have an aging population in a a culture and a society that uh, whose worldview is breaking down, and when I hear that title of death makes life possible, I wonder uh, if there was an idea in the in the back of your mind or Dr. Chopra's mind when you were uh, when you set out to do this film to reintroduce into our um, into our culture uh, uh, something that would help to uh, sort of introduce the continuum of consciousness that we don't honor or recognize, which is why our, our uh, main, our dominant paradigm at the moment is breaking down, um, according to a lot of people. So what does this continuum of consciousness and death makes life possible have to do, again, with this meta picture uh, right now? Is that even there? You know, being with these Incas yesterday, it made me aware and also hearing you talk about Renaissance thinking. And um, we have, as a civilization, lived through many changes in our paradigm, in, in our worldview. Uh, you know, moving from a strictly mechanistic model, the Newtonian cause and effect model, to now something that is very much informed by quantum physics, by interconnectedness, by a-causal relationships. Um, and so that is the transformation of a worldview and a paradigm shift. And I was thinking yesterday in being with these, um, these Native people that uh, what we have today is the opportunity to be more mindful of that revolution than ever before. Because we have the mass communications, because we have conversations like we're having right now, we're, we're bringing awareness to the fact that we're living in a time of revolution. It's a, a, a revolution in thought, in our understanding of who we are and what we're capable of be, becoming. Um, we're seeing the strict dependence on religious dogma um, being questioned. You know, whether people choose to embrace uh, a faith tradition of their 
um, history, we see that the baby boomers, for example, are really showing a return to religiosity as well as a um, burgeoning spirituality. Uh, there is a, a sense that something new is being born. And one of the topics that comes up is, is consciousness and what do we mean by consciousness? And if you talk to somebody like Michael Shermer, who we interviewed for the film, um, Michael is the head of Skeptic Magazine and really is a materialist. And from his worldview, we die, we're dead, we're done, and that's it. And consciousness is simply an epiphenomenon or a byproduct of the brain and nothing more. And yet, Many people, um, the vast majority of people, feel that there may be something more, that there is something about our spirit or our soul that allows us to transcend our physical being. And that kind of consciousness uh, is understood in different ways. I mean, consciousness is also a, a huge mystery. And we are only just now taking it seriously as a, a science um, and uh, I think what needs to happen is for that science to mature a little bit because it wants to reduce everything to the brain. Um, a lot of the neuroscience, cognitive science, um, you know, mainstream psychology is very uh, influenced by that dominant paradigm of materialism. But I think it's now being informed uh, by these spiritual insights. And that's one of the extraordinary things about our times is that, you know, never before have so many worldviews, belief systems, ways of approaching reality come into contact. And, you know, we have people traveling to the remotest places on the planet and, and learning about different worldviews, different cosmologies, or, or the Internet is a truly extraordinary vehicle for reaching out and connecting. So there is this changing perception about uh, consciousness and about our interconnectedness. And because we're in the middle of that paradigm shift, it's not entirely clear where it's going. But where we move with the movie, uh, Death Makes Life Possible, which we hope to have released in spring next year, uh, 2013, um, and where we're going with the book by the same name, is the notion of a new story. And that we have all the beauty that comes from these wisdom traditions and the insights and the practices and the, the cultivation of a lifestyle that comes from those traditions. Um, we have this opportunity to question our assumptions and to really look at you know, what is so for each of us individually through this Western scientific critical thinking um, approach. And that's beautiful, too. And watching them come together and then interviewing people like Stuart Hameroff, who's an anesthesiologist at um, the University of Arizona. And he talks about, you know, the quantum soul and that there's a possibility that our soul may take on these principles of the quantum universe and that things people had been talking about thousands of years ago are now finding some kind of legitimacy in these um, theoretical physics experiments. And, uh, and so it's really an exciting moment to grapple with these. And as you say, it's also very timely. Uh, it's not only in the United States that we're seeing uh, an aging population. It's actually a global phenomenon. And we're seeing it in Asia, in South America. Um, we're seeing it in Europe. And so this is something that isn't just, you know, 
my problem or your problem or America's problem or, you know, it's, it's a global trend. And I think there is a, a call and a hunger for meaning amongst people who want to understand. Maybe they're a caregiver now for an aging parent and they're looking for coping skills for dealing with, you know, what's happening there. And maybe there are different worldviews involved in that caregiving situation. Maybe um, one person happens to be an atheist and the other happens to be a Catholic. How do you have a conversation across those worldviews that can invite in healing? Uh, I think that's a really important question. Uh, And then I think as people are pondering their own mortality, uh, really understanding and coming to terms with the denial impulse doesn't work and it only leaves a lot of crap behind for other people. And I think that that's true literally, you know, when we don't clean out our closet, somebody else is going to have to do it. But it's also true at the broader kind of metaphorical level of our global community and how it is that if we don't take responsibility for, you know, those seven generations coming after us, if we don't feel the continuity line with them, then we don't have that sense of responsibility to take care of the planet, to take care of the institutions that are going to support our families into the future. Uh, And so I think this issue of pondering consciousness, pondering the potential survival of consciousness after bodily death, really addressing our own perceptions and beliefs around death and what happens when we die, um, it can be a great liberator. It can really help us to facilitate that paradigm shift into something that is more compassionate and sustainable for all of us. Urban Laszlo says in his book, Quantum Shift in the Global Brain, that this piece of looking at death and disproving its finality is the most important piece right now for us to do. He says that. Uh, his book is a beautiful thing, and I, I do recommend it. Uh, it's a very easy read, too, for people who are trying to get their head around the idea of everything that we've been talking here contextually, what is happening uh, culturally and historically with humankind as we move from one um, model of uh, worldview into into this holos model, he calls it, the holistic, interconnected. It's all alive, it, and, and we're... Um, uh, again, interconnected. But he says that this piece this uh, of death is, is the most important piece right now. So your film and book are, again, timely with a global aging population and with activists like Irvin Laszlo saying, uh, if we could just begin a discussion around this issue, if we could just introduce the ideas uh, over the water cooler um, with each other as as we uh, take on um, you know, our parents passing and our grandparents passing and our own mortality, there is a different sort of consciousness that will not only, you know, it's not just the benefit of, of, of people around us, but for us personally to meet our full human potential. Um, what do you think about, uh, and you kind of just hit on all of that, but um, what else would you like to say about the film and its importance to the listeners? Well, we weave together some beautiful elements that I think um, can make it a little less confrontational. So humor, 
um, we try to have quite a bit of humor in the movie and uh, the lighthearted spirit that can come when we don't take ourselves too seriously. And we have art. We talked to uh, a Native American uh, flautist who goes into hospice and plays the flute, and he carries this message of um, vision and imagination into the hospice. Uh, centers. And then we talked to Gary Melkin, who's a, um, a beautiful uh, composer, and he played on a Steinway piano for us um, and talked in, in doing that about how music can help at an energetic level to connect people connect people living, departed, young, old, uh, across the world, and that it becomes a great language mediator. And and he goes further to say a subtle energy radiator, that it can actually help us in terms of our vibrating together, our resonating together. And I think that's a, a really beautiful thought as you're, you know, watching the chords on the piano or the the um, the wires vibrating and then feeling that as you put your hand on the piano and recognizing that that becomes a metaphor for the interconnected nature of life. And, uh, and I'm talking to an artist, a visual artist, about her work on um, impermanence and some beautiful examples of how as she's creating in the course of her artistic work, and she's a magnificent artist, Fariba Bogzarin is her name, uh, that there is a way in which she is connecting the past, the present, the future, and doing it in a way that um, is embodied. So as she's working with the medium, uh, the physical medium that she's creating, it's a, it's a transformational model. And so I, um, I think that our movie is something that has soul. It has a, a dramatic arc, as it were. So it's, it's written as a three-act program, which is not that common in documentaries. Uh, and so I, I hope that it will be able to move the, the listener or the viewer in ways that are very personal and very emotional. Uh, we have an original soundtrack that Giovanni Mandala, my husband, is uh, creating, and it's fabulous. And um, his father died this year as well. And so he's been able to channel a lot of his emotions into developing um, a line of music that helps to choreograph our emotions as we're led through this journey. Uh, and it's a journey of discovery and of exploration and of our own um, self-reflection. So at the end of the movie, we're not going to tell the viewer what to think, uh, but what we're going to do is, is truly invite them to think about what is important to them to reach into their hearts and their bellies and their brains and, and think about what has meaning and purpose for them and how does this conversation uh, empower them to live their life more fully. Well, thank you so much for coming today and, and talking with me about Death Makes Life Possible. And I look forward to uh, the, uh, seeing the, there are going to be articles in Lillipo Magazine and Pathways to Family Wellness Magazine. Um, but the movie is at the Institute of Noetic Sciences website right now at noetic.org. And is there anything else that the listeners should know about where to find the movie and when? 
Well, that's the trailer. Um, and so they can see four minutes of something that we put together about a year ago. So the um, the production of it has changed quite a bit, and I'm excited about that. Uh, we have a Facebook page, and so people, if they Google Death Makes Life Possible, uh, will find access to a lot of materials. Uh, we're transporting, we did a, a crowdfunding um, initiative, which I want to thank anybody who participated in that. We had about 550 people who invested in this movie, and we were so grateful for that. Uh, but in that process, we put together a bunch of pictures of behind the scenes. So as we're going out and doing these interviews, uh, we've been posting little snippets. And so if people want to stay connected, um, also on the noetic.org site, uh, I recently posted a blog on the current status of where things are, kind of a progress report. And so people can stay connected with um, the project as it unfolds, as we're engaging the most extraordinary people in these conversations. Uh, and then we will be developing a way that we can be uh, inviting stories from people so that they can share their own experiences. So it's it's a really fun thing, and I'm really happy to be collaborating with you, Lisa. I, you do such great work, and it's a, a privilege. Well, this sounds like a fantastic and dynamic project. And, again, I go back to the idea of death being the undiscovered country, and it looks like uh, it's been discovered. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I say we're in the process. We're in the process. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've got our binoculars out, and we are looking. So All right. Thank you All so right. much. All right. Thank you.